It certainly is good to be here with you this morning, and we appreciate the presence of all that have come to be with us. We have a number of visitors here in our assembly, and we welcome you uh, today. I hope that what's considered for a little while this morning will be helpful and encouraging to you in some way. As I have on the board, I have John the 18th chapter, verses 1 through 11, and we'll notice those verses this morning, but just for a text, we'll read verses 3 through 5. John chapter 18. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Last Lord's Day, we talked about when Jesus revealed who it was that would betray him. But now they've left the upper room, and Jesus now, with his disciples, going to enter the Garden of Gethsemane, and we'll entitle our remarks, Jesus Betrayed and Arrested. Before we do, though, at this time, we want to pray. Apart from the cross, no greater agony has ever been experienced by any being who has ever lived in this world in human form. No man has ever suffered in this way. In fact, this is the second greatest agony that our Lord would ever experience. The first certainly being that which would come on the cross itself. This is the second great agony. This is the apex of his life of sorrow and grief. This is the high point of torturous suffering. This is the night when Jesus anticipates drinking of the cup of divine wrath that would be his in full on the next day on the cross. And again, his sorrow was so severe and his struggle was so massive that Jesus, while in the Garden of Gethsemane, would say, my soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto death. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's accounts, we find included there the agony in the garden where we see Jesus Christ breaking down from the anticipation of becoming the bearer of sin for all mankind. Those accounts include all of the things that humiliated Jesus and all the things that made him suffer. But John's account does not include those things. And let me just say that if we want to get the total picture, we would have to study all four of the gospel accounts. But as we look at John's account only this morning, we find that his purpose is to present Jesus Christ as deity. You won't find the anguish in the garden. You won't find the crying in the garden. You don't find the sweating, as it were, great drops of blood falling to the ground. You don't find anything degrading or debasing or humiliating in John's gospel. In fact, we find the opposite. We find as Jesus was going about to be arrested that John points out it glorifies Jesus Christ in every way. In the 11 verses that are before our consideration this morning, we're going to see the supremacy of Jesus Christ. There are four preeminent features in these verses that show us the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And what could certainly be a humiliating thing as he's arrested as a common criminal actually exalts him to the very highest. And so the first of these preeminent features is this. When we look at these 11 verses, we see first and foremost the Lord here, and we see his supreme 
courage. We see his supreme courage. Now, the obvious statement is this, that his courage is, is certainly seen in his willingness and determination to go to the cross. Now, obviously, it's very courageous when a man would be willing to die for a cause or die for someone else. It's a very courageous thing to be martyred for a truth that a man refuses to reject. In fact, we would consider that in our society something that is noble. But to purpose in your mind to go to the cross, knowing that it means that all of your purity, all of your sinlessness, all of that, everything that you've ever been would be violated when you bore the sin, every sin of every man that has ever lived. And to add to that, to be on that cross of Calvary with those nail-pierced hands and feet and be abandoned by God. So much so that when Jesus was going through the greatest pain and shame of all, he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But friends, that's the kind of courage that is infinite, supreme courage. And when Jesus sets his face to go to the cross, he does so undaunted and without hesitation. Let me just make a point here that I think we need to understand, all of us now. Before we go any further, when Jesus was in the garden and when Jesus was arrested, he was not tricked, he was not trapped, and he was not surprised. Nothing happened to Jesus that he didn't know was going to happen. He wasn't trapped, he wasn't tricked, and he wasn't surprised. And so we find our Lord demonstrating infinite courage, determined to go to the cross to die for the sins of the whole world. Now look with me now in verse number one. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, from this text, we find that after he had spoken these words, and these words were the words that were spoken in prayer in the 17th chapter. And as soon as he did that, the Bible says he went forth. Evidently, our Lord had left the upper room and also the city of Jerusalem with his faithful followers, his faithful disciples. He went over the brook Kidron, and there was a garden there. And the Bible says that he enters that garden with those disciples. He moved immediately to the Garden of Gethsemane, which had been his custom. He had spent many evenings there on the Mount of Olives in that garden. In fact, it was his custom, a custom to retire there in the evenings. In John chapter 7, at the end of the chapter, it says this, Every man went to his own house. Now, where did Jesus go? Verse 8 begins with the words, and Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. This was the closest thing that our Lord had to home in this world. You remember that Jesus on one occasion would say that the foxes have holes and the birds have nests. But what did it say about the Son of Man? Jesus says, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He had no home in this world. And the closest thing that he had for a home was the place that he would go to be close to his father and speak to his father in prayer in the evenings, a place he would retire 
and that was on the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, there was another place that Jesus would go from time to time. There would be times he would go up the Mount of Olives. He'd make a little turn, and a scholar I read this week said it would have been a right turn. He would make a right turn and go around the mountain, and he would go to a place called Bethany. You remember who was in Bethany? Some dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. In fact, in the account when Jesus goes to raise Lazarus from the dead, we hear those wonderful words and we see Jesus there and the Bible says he wept. You know what they said in response to that? Oh, how he loved him. That word loved is not the same love that the Lord has for all mankind and it's not the kind of love in the Bible that is commanded love. That word love right there means close affection. That's the human side of Jesus. He had close friends in this world too. But he wouldn't go there on this night. He wouldn't go to Bethany and see his friends on this night. It was time for Gethsemane. And so he entered that fatal garden. And Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. In fact, not only did he know what was going to happen, but he planned every detail. Jesus had gone there several times, a number of times, with his disciples. And get this, Judas knew exactly the place. And Jesus knew that Judas knew that was the place. Stay with me. And Jesus knew that Judas would bring those soldiers to that place on that night to arrest Jesus. He wasn't going to Bethany to hide. He was going to Gethsemane and lay it, all, lay it all out. Supreme, infinite courage. And so Jesus goes to the Garden of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives. You know, that brings up an interesting point from the Old Testament. And I'll not spend a lot of time on this, but I'll just mention this briefly. There are two kinds of prophecy that are found in the Old Testament. One is called verbal predictive prophecy, and the other is called typical prophecy. Verbal predictive prophecy is prophecy that says words like this, a very familiar verse. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. That verse gives us detailed verbalization of the coming of Jesus Christ. But typical prophecy is prophecy in pictures or types. For example, in the Old Testament, every Old Testament sacrifice was a picture of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he would make. Therefore, it became a prophecy that a final sacrifice would come. Also, we find in the New Testament, there were men that actually by their lives were types of Christ. Men like Moses, who Moses typified Jesus and that Moses was the deliverer of God's people. And Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that, the ultimate deliverer for all mankind. We can look to Joseph. In fact, one scholar said that he counted over a hundred points of likeness between Joseph and Jesus. Even when he was sold into slavery, he was sold by his brothers for the price of a slave. Sound familiar? What about David? We talked about David last Lord's Day. I'm not going to that story again, but remember, Jesus would be a king like David. 
And I told you a little story that's found in 2 Samuel chapter 15 about David and Ahithophel. Ahithophel was David's own familiar friend, and that friend betrayed his friend, David. What did David do after that? 2 Samuel 15 says, They escaped, they went out the gate of Jerusalem, they went down the slope, sound familiar? They crossed the Kidron, and they went up to the Mount of Olives, and who went with him? His faithful followers. Doesn't that sound familiar? Jesus left the city of Jerusalem. He crossed the Kidron. And he went up to the Mount of Olives to the Garden of Gethsemane with his faithful followers too. And they were called the Eleven Apostles. Ahithophel and David is, in that little incident, then becomes a perfect picture in the Old Testament of what is to come. When the true king would come, the king of kings. And Judas becomes even more treacherous than Ahithophel. You know, you might ask yourself the question, well, if Jesus knew all that was going to happen, why did he choose the Garden of Gethsemane? Why did Jesus go there? Well, there are a variety of reasons, and we'll notice just a few. Number one, it was a place of prayer, and he wanted to talk to his father. You know, this account doesn't describe the agonizing prayer that Jesus prayed, but he did pray an agonizing prayer. He would pray to his father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but thy will be done. Oh, he prayed an, ag prayed an agonizing prayer. No doubt this was a place he wanted to be close to his father. Number two, he perhaps went there because it was a place of rest. It was a place where he can get away from all the conflicts in the world. Thirdly, maybe he went there because it was a place of fellowship with his disciples, a place that they could be alone together. And while every one of these reasons is true, every single one of these reasons is secondary to the primary reason why Jesus took his disciples and went to the Garden of Gethsemane. I believe the primary reason he went there is because he knew that Judas would go there and bring those soldiers to arrest him, and he was making it easy for them to do so. Now, Jesus wasn't surprised at all. He knew. In the Old Testament, it details Judas and what he was going to do, not only in typical prophecy with Ahithophel, but in a very, very accurate verbalization. It even tells him the selling price of 30 pieces of silver, and it says that they took that money to buy the potter's field. In the Old Testament, I believe Jesus was forcing the confrontation that would result in his death in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus knew that Judas would be there and that Judas knew the place. Look at verse 2. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. For Jesus often met there with his disciples. Jesus wanted his final betrayal to be in the garden. Now, picture this. What if Jesus allowed the betrayal to happen in the downtown streets of Jerusalem in the city? You ever thought about that? Why did he go to a secluded place privately, a place of solitude and all that? 
Why not right out there in the open let everybody see the shame and let everybody see how Jesus was a victim? You know why? Because Jesus was not a victim. Jesus was a victor. He was the ultimate victor. I think they didn't do it downtown Jerusalem because think about this. Jesus was popular. You know, even those that followed Jesus that didn't recognize him as the Messiah, they followed him. He was popular. Why? He healed their diseases. He fed them. He did many things like that. Can you imagine if they would have done it in downtown Jerusalem? Can you imagine the riot? Maybe there would have been a riot that destroyed and tore up the city. Maybe his disciples, those faithful 11, with their minute faith, not understanding all of that, would have gone with swords to fight against that. And maybe there would have been a tremendous insurrection and revolution. So he gathers them in a private place, a place where he knew they would come and take him without resistance. This is voluntary, willful surrender. In John chapter 10 and verse 17, it says, Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. Let's not forget that part. This command I receive from who? From my father. Listen, folks. A coward would have gone anywhere but the garden. A coward would have gone any other place but the garden of Gethsemane. You know, there were other times when Jesus hid from danger. There were other times when he fled. But the reason for his hiding and fleeing wasn't that he was a coward or afraid. This is the most courageous man that ever walked on the face of this earth. And all the men in, in all the annals of history, all the great men of courage, no one, it all pales in comparison to the courage of our Lord. Why did he flee in days past, in days gone by? He would hide and flee because it wasn't his hour yet. It wasn't his time yet. But now, everything's changed. Now, it's the appointed hour. It's the appointed hour that God designed that Jesus should die. And incidentally, you think it's a coincidence that's now the Passover season? All of those Old Testament Passover sacrifices, all of those lambs that were slain for all of those years typified the supreme sacrifice of God's lamb, the ultimate sacrifice. You think it's a coincidence that on this Passover season, God's lamb, the ultimate lamb, is going to be slain? It was time. And Jesus, by his actions, as it, it, it is as if he is saying, since my hour has come, I'll make it easy for them to arrest me. Proving, again, no victim, but a victor. In Matthew 26, in Matthew's account, it says that a great multitude came with what? With swords and staves and clubs, and they were ready for action. Can you imagine? These were skilled men of violence and all of that. And they all come with swords and staves. And you know, the best that I can tell is the temple police probably were the ones that used the clubs. And the soldiers of Rome used the swords and the staves. And they all come here to get Jesus. Look at verse 3. 
Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Now, a point of interest here. How many men were in this group of men that were coming to find Jesus in the garden? We don't know for absolute certain. In the New King James, it says a detachment of troops. In the King James, it says a band of men. That phrase, a band of men, means a Roman cohort. Now, how many were involved in a Roman cohort? One historian says it was at least 200 men and could have been as much as 1,200 men. Now, let's just do this. Let's just split the difference. Let's just say 600 men. That means in this Roman band of men, this Roman cohort, hundreds of men showed up. But not only that, guess who else came? The chief priests and the Pharisees. Who else? A great mob also followed along. Hundreds of men. And they come with staves and swords and clubs and all of that. You know, what a compliment to Jesus that they would send so many men to go pick up a Galilean carpenter and his friends. Now, why would I say it like that? Because they didn't recognize Jesus as the Son of God. They didn't recognize Jesus as the Messiah. In fact, they just called him Jesus, his name, of Nazareth, where he was from. And that's it. And they got hundreds of men going to find Jesus. Now, also we find that they come with lanterns and torches. An interesting point, I read this week that historians tell us that at that time of the Passover then, there would have been or should have been a full moon. I thought this was interesting, I'll just pass it along. That there probably was a full moon at that time. In other words, a full moon at that time would have lit up Jerusalem. There would have been plenty of light. They wouldn't have needed torches and lanterns to find their way on that short distance from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. Interesting. So why in the world do they have torches and lanterns on this journey from Jerusalem to Gethsemane? You know, I'll tell you something. I think it's this. I think they thought Jesus would be hiding somewhere. I think these soldiers thought that they were going to have to take these torches and lanterns and go search out all the nooks and crannies to look in, in caves and all manner of places looking for Jesus. Here's the irony, though. The irony is they are, with torches, searching for the light of the world. And they are, with swords, searching for the Prince of Peace. What a tremendous insult. What a cruel misinterpretation of what Jesus was and all he stood for. And right out in front of them all, guess what is Judas? His familiar friend, who has lifted up his heel against him, literally crushing the neck of Jesus. And what does he do when he arrives? The other gospel accounts say when they arrived, Judas kissed Jesus. Now, interestingly, in Mark chapter 15 and verse 44, we find in Mark's account they make the deal. And Judas tells them, whoever I kiss, that's him, lay hold of him. That's the one. 
But in verse 45, when they got there, it says he kissed him. Interesting word. That word there is the form of the verb form for kiss in verse 44. And it means this, a continuous expression of affection. It means he kissed him repeatedly. You know, it's bad enough that he would betray him and kiss him one time. A form of greeting and love and respect and all of that. But he didn't do that at all. By the definition of that verb form of that word, he kissed him repeatedly. All he had to do was point him out. That's him. All he had to do was walk up and give him a quick kiss on the cheek and they would have known. But this vile betrayer kissed him repeatedly. What a devilish refinement of a kiss. And you know, nowhere else do we find a disciple's kiss coupled with a traitor's sign. Now verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? I'm so glad that John includes this here because it says Jesus, therefore, knowing what? Knowing all things that were specific that were going to happen. What did he do? He initiated the whole thing. Now, we might put the gospel accounts together. We might think that Judas made the kiss first, and maybe he did. But Judas didn't initiate anything. Jesus did. Jesus says, the Bible says, he knew what was going to happen, everything. And so he went forth. And not only that, he said what? He says, whom are you seeking? The first action after the kiss was Jesus, and he initiated the whole thing. This is humble, willing self-sacrifice. Now, he asks the question, whom are you seeking? Jesus, initiating everything, saw them coming. He saw before, when he was in the upper room, Jesus knew that, excuse me, that Judas, that Judas was going to betray him. He knew that Judas put it all together. Surprise victim? Absolutely not. He knew everything, and he initiated the confrontation right here. This, friends, is majestic boldness, and it's the courage that our Lord had to go to the cross for us. Now verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him also, stood with them. Notice, Jesus responds. He says, whom are you seeking? They said, Jesus of Nazareth, his name and where he was from. And Jesus says, I am he. Now, interestingly, the word he there is in italics. And what we find there is it was not in the original. It was added by the translator. So let's just do that. Jesus says, I am. You know, the Bible says, Jesus speaking of himself, before Abraham was, I what? I am. I am is a name for God. Jesus, God the Son. What does he say? I am in response to what they said. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he or I am. That is significant too when we look at the next point. And that's our second point. Not only did the Lord show supreme courage, but the Lord also showed supreme courage. power 
He showed supreme power. When Jesus, look at verse 6. Now when he said to them, I am he, what happened? They drew back and they fell to the ground. Now, I think Judas is there, and the Bible describes that Judas was there too looking on. I think Judas was there to prove the Judas and show everybody else and show all the disciples whom Jesus says one's going to betray me that Judas was there and he has no power whatsoever. When Jesus responded, I am, what happened? It says they drew back and they all fell to the ground. That is an amazing passage of scripture. Now, I think that Jesus was showing that he's in control here, that he was laying down his life, that nobody was taking his life from him, and Jesus simply says, I am, and hundreds of men fall down. Let me notice something with you. Some commentators are all over the map on this. One commentator said this, that when this Roman cohort showed up, that somebody in the front row stepped back and stumbled. And when he did, he tipped himself into somebody else. And they, like dominoes, can you imagine this, 600 men? They, like dominoes, just fell down. They just fell down. If you pardon today's common vernacular, really, is that really what you're going with? Can you imagine a Roman cohort being so ignorant? They knew how to line up. They knew how to march. And they wouldn't be pressed up against each other so closely that if one fell down, they'd be absolutely so uncoordinated, they're all going to fall too. Another commentator said this. Oh, they thought they were going to have to go and take those lanterns and search out Jesus and find him. And they were so shocked when they found that it was he, they just fell down in amazement and astonishment. I like this better. The Bible says when Jesus said these words, they drew back and fell. I like that better. I like what the book says. They fell. Now let me ask you something now. Who's got the power? Let me ask you, who's in control? There flowed from Jesus such a power and such a commanding authority that he made him so infinitely strong that they couldn't even stand in his presence and they had no idea what was going on. Again, another sign that Jesus is no victim. And you know, that interestingly brings up a point about the words that Jesus spoke. The Bible says that God created the world by what? By his word. You remember in the creation, the Bible says, God said, let there be light, and there was what? Light. God said, let there be this, and there was what? This. God said, let there be that, and there was what? That. Now, when Jesus Christ comes in judgment at the end of time, the Bible says, he has a sharp sword, and where is it? Coming out of his mouth. You see, the word of God is that powerful. The word of God will judge men. It's the word of God that will condemn men. It's the word of God that's incisive. And the Bible says he will judge the world by the word of his mouth. And just maybe this mob tasted a little bit of the judgment power of Jesus Christ as they fell helpless at his feet. Victim? No, sir. 
not Jesus. He is the majestic Son of God, displaying his supreme power. Thirdly, Jesus also demonstrates something that's beautiful here. He demonstrates his supreme love. He demonstrates his supreme love. Now, it's one thing to say Jesus had love. But it's another thing to demonstrate it by your actions. You know, actions are always greater than words. They are. We want to see people's actions. Look what Jesus does by way of his actions that proved his supreme love. We see something as Jesus anticipates the cross. He's never concerned about himself. You ever stop to see that? He is never concerned about himself. He is always concerned about his disciples. They constantly are on his mind. Here we see the selflessness of Jesus. We see his endless love for his own. In fact, in Mark's account, in Mark 15, it talks about that prayer. Three times he prayed. You know what was broken up in there in the middle of those three prayers? Going to see about his disciples. Checking on his own. Checking on his disciples. Let me ask you something. Don't you think the Lord had a lot on his mind right now? I think the Lord was pretty busy just now, don't you? I think he had a lot of things on his mind. And what a picture of beauty this is. He still had time for his own. If that doesn't encourage us, that it doesn't make any difference all the hustle and bustle of this world and all the busyness all around us, the Lord still has time for his own. And if you are living a faithful life, there is a condition. If you are living a faithful life, he always has time for you. This world is not run all by itself. He always has time for his own. How did he demonstrate it? Look at verse 7. Then he asked them again, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is interesting, because all these men, based on what Jesus said, fell down. They just picked themselves up, and they still, they're not affected by what he says. In fact, they still just kind of let it go in one ear and out the other. He said, I am. He said, oh, well, we're after Jesus of Nazareth. A <clears throat> couple things about that. That's not something that's new to us. How many people hear the word of God clearly, concisely, and powerfully preached? And they know exactly what they must do to be saved. They know exactly the changes they need to make in their life. They hear the invitation call, and then they go straight out those doors and forget all about it. Happens today. But why did Jesus ask the question twice? Why did he do that? Look at verse 8. Then Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. He's saying this. He is getting them to, to speak it out. He is getting them to say who they're looking for. Twice. Brilliant. We want to talk about Jesus taking it all. He's taking it all. 
brilliant. He gets them to say their orders. We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth only. He gets them to confirm it twice. And then Jesus says, okay. Not once, but twice on the second time. He said, fine. I'm he. Let them go. Protecting his own. That's beautiful. This is a king. This is not a victim. This is a king commanding them in charge all the way. Another reason, too, this is for good reason. Jesus needed them to carry out the message. They were going to be the ambassadors for Jesus Christ. They were going to be the very first members of the church. They were going to be the first leaders of the church. The Holy Spirit, they'd be divinely inspired by. And they would, they would uh, speak the words of the Lord. They'd speak the word of God. They'd preach the word of God before it was written. And you know something? This is really amazing. Because here's the enemy. Here's the enemy. And here was his disciples. And Jesus stands right in the middle of all of them. What a beautiful concept. The Lord stands in the gap. The Lord stands in the middle. And if you are living a faithful life, and I don't know if you are or not, but if you are, I'm telling you right now, the Lord is in the gap. He will not leave our side. Jesus is not the kind of shepherd who rescues the lamb after it's half eaten by the wolf. In John 10 and verse 12, the Bible says, but a hireling, that's different than a shepherd, but a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. Next verse, verse 13. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and does not care about the sheep. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. Finally, verse 15. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life. For who? For the sheep. That's the shepherd that we follow right there. This is the protecting, protecting power of the shepherd. You know, there might be another reason, too, he protected them. Maybe he knew they couldn't handle that kind of torture. You ever stop to consider that? What kind of faith did they have? Think about their faith. What did Jesus say about their faith? Oh, ye of little faith. How many times? Maybe the Lord just absolutely knew they couldn't take that kind of test. That coincides with other passages. He protects them. How many today fall? Because their faith is too weak, because the test is too strong. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, there's a very powerful passage there that's very encouraging to every one of us. Notice, chapter 10 and verse 13, Paul said, No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that you are able, but with the temptation will also make a way of escape, and you will be able to bear it. If you're his, faithfully serving him, the Lord will never let you slip through his grasp. The Lord always has time for his own, but you can't do it on your own. You can't do it your own way. 
You can't do it your own way. Sometimes we think we can venture out and do it our own way. You know who learned that lesson? Peter did. Look at the next verse. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Now, he wasn't so skilled with the sword that he just aimed for the ear and, and knocked the ear off. Peter was swinging for the cheap seats. He was trying to cut his head off. And in missing that, he sliced off Malchus's ear. What did Jesus do? You know, that could, have, that could have brought on a massive riot right then. They could have killed Peter right then. What's Jesus do? Jesus stands up for Peter. Jesus stands in for Peter. Jesus comes to the rescue, and he picks up the ear of Malchus, and he puts it back on. And then he turns to Peter and says, Peter, put that thing away. Put it away. Other passages would say that Jesus says, if you are going to live by the sword, you will die by the sword. What did the Lord do? He rescued Peter. And the Lord rescues us too. When problems come in our life. Now listen closely, and I'm almost finished. He may not stop something bad from happening. But I guarantee you, he is there to rescue us if you are there for him. He's there to rescue us. And I'm going to tell you something, too. You think about the darkest times in your life. The Lord may not stop the action from happening. But I guarantee you, he was there to rescue you. And it is like that poem that we all know the words to. Everybody knows this poem. When Jesus would say, as Jesus would be speaking, when you only saw one set of footprints. It was then that I carried you. He'll carry you through cancer. He'll carry you through loss of loved ones. He'll carry you through, and even if at the end result it's a bad thing, even if you lose your life, He's carrying you and he's taking care of you and rescuing you that you may be able to bear it. He's always got time for you. Let me ask you something. How much time you got for him? Where is he in your life? Because in the, all the hustle and bustle of this world, he's there for you. In your busy life, are you there for him? In conclusion, this is our final point. I'm almost finished. We not only see his supreme courage, power, and love, but we see his supreme obedience. We see his supreme obedience. Look at verse 11. So Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into the sheath, Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? He's saying, Peter, what are you doing? Get out of the way. It's my time. It's my destiny. It's what I was born to do. It's what my job is. Are you really going to stand in the way, Peter? Put that up and get out of the way. I've got a cup to drink. And friends, he drank it to the very bottom. Jesus paid a price he didn't know. 
because we had a debt we couldn't pay. And so in chapter, this, cha this chapter 18 and verses, verse 1 through 11, we see in the Garden of Gethsemane the Lord's supreme courage, supreme power, supreme love, and finally his supreme obedience. I'm through this morning. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.